that hymn is, uh, is good for my heart. <laughs> but, uh, but I can't really sing it without my eyes welling up in joy over what God is, is doing, um, even through the midst of trials, uh, for his glory and for our good. Uh, this morning, our passage, as we continue in the gospel according to Luke, is Luke chapter 9, verses 1 to 9. And he called the twelve together and gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases. And he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. And he said to them, take nothing for your journey, no staff, no bag, nor bread, nor money, and do not take two tunics. Whatever house you enter, stay there, and from there do not depart. And whenever they do not receive you, When you leave that town, shake off the dust from your feet as a testimony against them. And they departed and went through the villages, preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. Now Herod the Tetrarch had heard all about what was happening. He was perplexed because it had been said by some that John the Baptist had been raised from the dead. And by some that Elijah had appeared and by others that one of the prophets of old had risen. Herod said, Herod said, John, I beheaded, but who is this about whom I hear such things? And he sought to see him. This is the word of our Lord. May the Lord add his blessing for our glory, for his glory and for our blessing. Please be seated. And let's pray again together. Heavenly Father, as we approach this passage of scripture, we pray that you would help us to see what you have called us to do. Lord, as we see these duties that you have given to the twelve, to those apostles, those first disciples, Lord, help us to see the way that they were called to follow in your footsteps. Lord, help us to see the way that we are called to follow in their footsteps as they followed you. Lord, I pray that you would help us to see what you have called us to, the glorious privilege that you have called us to, as all of us are called to be ministers of the gospel. But Lord, we also know that that if you tarry, that all of us will suffer at some point and to some degree. And so, Lord, we pray that you would help us to see their faith and their hope that they had in you, Lord Jesus. Help us to take great comfort and courage and consolation that, Lord Jesus, you suffered in our place. The innocent for the guilty. And that that is true for us every bit as much as it was for those first disciples. And so, Lord, I pray that you would help us Lord, to see their faith and to walk in faithfulness because of the gospel. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Training and discipleship are part of the ministry of the church. As I look back on my Christian walk, I I look back at, at several faithful and godly men who the Lord placed in my life to walk with me and pray with me and to teach me and to to exhort me and to encourage me and even at times to rebuke me. And I was thankful for the presence of those men in my life at all times, but there were particular junctures in my life, particular points in time when their presence was most sweet and most needed. Times when when I was was faced with a a difficult decision or or times when I was was walking through a significant trial and and these men brought the word of God to me and encouraged me and carried me along in the word of God by the grace of God. Discipleship and training in the local church are indispensable. But seminaries can also be a support to the church in training. And I'm also very thankful for the the training that I received in seminary. And I remember very clearly my last semester at Southern Seminary. It was my last year. Graduation was just around the corner. 
And Mark Dever came to speak, and, and he was talking about, about a friend of his, uh, James L. Price Jr., who was one of the faculty that, that he had known and that he had studied under at Duke University. And Price had talked to Mark Dever about, about how he had been a, a Navy chaplain in the South Pacific during World War II. And that as Price would, would stand on the deck of a ship on the, on the eve of a battle, the morning of a battle, and give a, a sermon preaching the gospel to these men as, as he looked out at these, these faces of all these young men who were about to go into battle, that he realized that quite a number of them would not be there the next time they gathered together. because many of them would be killed in battle. And Mark Dever, as he looked out at, at the, the seminarians who were gathered, he said, as I think about that, as I, I think about that, as I look out at you. He said, as I think about this, I realize that, that very likely in, in 20 to 25 years or, or even less, that, that many of you will not make it. That many of you will not make it in ministry. And then he went on to, to preach a, a sermon from 1 Thessalonians 3, 10 to 13, saying that, that he, he was wondering what he could share from God's word to help more to make it. And as I sat there listening, I, I was filled with what I believe was, was holy fear. And he, he, here I was about, about to be sent out into ministry in just a few short months. And I wondered if I would be one of the men who make it. I've never forgotten that. My prayer is, is, Lord, help me to make it. And as I look out at you this morning, I can't help but wonder the same thing. I'm not talking about, about who's going to make it in ministry or even who is going to survive should real persecution break out, though I'm concerned about those things too. What I'm wondering when I think about these things and as I look at it, you is, is whose faith is going to survive? I think I know most, if, if not all of you, pretty well. And for those who are new, I'm getting to know you. It's one of the advantages of, of being in a, in a small church. And I believe that, that most of you are walking closely with the Lord. I know you have your struggles. We all have our struggles. But for most of you, your faith appears to be real and active. But to be perfectly, perfectly frank, when someone walks away from the faith, it's, it's usually been evident for some time. There's usually been concerns that have been clear before that happens. But I've been surprised. This, I remember the, the, the parable of the soils, that, that at least in, in two of the soils, it, it appeared that the, the, the plant was growing. But then when, when trials came or persecution came, that the plant, one plant withered, or, or when, the, when the, 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 the cares and, and pleasures of life in other plants, choked the plant out so it, it didn't bear fruit. It, it died. And I've seen that happen. I remember one individual in particular who, who appeared to be walking closely with the Lord, and his theology was, was good. He had all the right answers, and and as it appeared to me and to those around us, it looked like this, this individual was, was, was a solid Bible-believing Christian. But that individual walked away from the faith. That individual went on to deny the gospel. And recently, I had coffee with this person, and, and, and I was told that, that what had appeared to be faith, this, they, they recognize this, what appeared to be faith was a sham. And that I and, and many others, and I would argue probably this person as well, were deceived. 
But I was thankful that, that as, I, as, we sat to get da- as we sat down together for coffee, that there was some stirring, some, what seemed to be some spiritual stirrings. It's my prayer that the, the Lord would, would do a work in this person's heart. And so as I look out at you, my prayer for you is, Lord, help them to make it. Help their faith to survive. I know the Lord preserves his elect. But I also know that God uses means to help them. One of those means is prayer. But another is, as Mark Dever made clear, the proclamation of God's word. And Lord willing, this passage from God's word will help you to make it. When we get to Luke chapter 9, Jesus is about halfway through his three years of active ministry. It's been roughly a year and a half since his baptism and about a year and a half until the cross. And his ministry in Galilee is almost complete. His time in Galilee is about to end. And Remember, as I explained earlier, that, that Luke arranges his gospel account geographically. And so the Galilee ministry is about 10. In verse 51, in this chapter, Jesus is going to set his face towards Jerusalem and the cross. Now, to this point, Jesus has been doing all the ministry. He's been doing it all. He, he cast out the demons. He, he healed the diseases. He raised the dead. He preached the sermons. He responded to the opposition. There's a lot of work that still needs to be done, but Jesus isn't going to do it alone for very much longer. And so he's about to send out the 12 apostles. This is the first time that he sends them out. That's what they're about to do. He told them, remember in Luke chapter 5, that, that they would become fishers of men, and they're about to become fishers of men. Jesus is going to send them out again repeatedly. And he knows the big picture. He knows that, that one time, that at one point soon, in about a year and a half, he's going to leave. And the ministry is going to be left in their hands. That they're going to continue the ministry in the power of the Holy Spirit. And, and so in sending out these 12 apostles, this is part of their training. This is essentially a short-term missions trip. Jesus is about to send the apostles out into the field. Again, he had told them that he was going to make them fishers of men, and this is why he had chosen these particular men. He had chosen them for this purpose. He had walked closely with them. He had prayed with them. He had taught them both in the context of his wider ministry and also he pulled them aside to expound on, on teaching more clearly and more, more to develop it more for them. He was preparing them. He was discipling them. He was discipling the disciples. And now he's sending them out. But it's not going to be a picnic. Jesus is sending them out into battle. And Jesus knew exactly who would survive and who wouldn't. He knew which ones would remain faithful and which ones wouldn't. Spoiler warning, they'll all survive this mission. Even though one of them was a traitor. And even though another individual, not an apostle, but a prophet, John the Baptist, one of Jesus' generals and another branch of his, of his military is about to lose, lose his life in this time frame. The stakes are high. They're the highest. And the apostles, apart from one, will become the foundation of the church. So when Jesus sends these men out, he sends them out with these words, with God's word to help them make it. Over the previous weeks, we've seen how Jesus has revealed who he is and his authority over nature, his authority over demons, over disease, and over death. Now we see that he has authority to grant that authority to the apostles. 
He gives them authority over diseases and demons. He also gives them authority over authority to preach. And so they prove who Jesus is by doing what he did. And this is the ministry that Jesus commissioned them for. They have a duty to the one who commissions them. These are the duties of disciples. In this passage, we're going to see the duties of disciples. We'll see the disciples' ministry outlined and their faith required. And we'll see how their ministry following that of Jesus also produces a response. We'll see one such response in verses 7 to 9 that provides a warning about those who will reject Jesus. Again, three key sections in this passage. In verses 1 to 2, we see the disciples' ministry. In verses 3 to 6, we see the disciples' trust. And in verses 7 to 9, we see the opponents' doubts. Once again, this incident is recorded in all three synoptic Gospels, not only here in Luke 9, 1 to 9, but also in Matthew 10, 1 to 15, and Mark 6, 7 to 13. This time, Luke's is, is, is a little bit more brief. Mark also will give a full account of the death of John the Baptist in verses 14 to 29. Now, these, these three accounts are presented quite similarly, but as we'll see, there is, there is a difference which, though minor, is used by many to deny biblical inerrancy. And we'll, we'll, we'll explain how the, the scriptures are, are not really inerrant in that in, in, as we reconcile those passage, these passages together. So first of all, in verses 1 to 2, the disciples' ministry. In verse 1, Jesus commissions the 12. He'll commission them again with his authority in Luke 10 and in Luke 22, and again after his resurrection in Luke 24, before the ascension. And then also in Acts 1, we'll start with the commission immediately before the ascension of Jesus. So this is the first time that Jesus is sending the 12 out. So he calls them, gathering them out of the larger group of those who are following them, and he gives them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases. Power and authority. This is another example, remember, of, of what we talked about before, of a hendiadis. This is when, when two words go together. It's like two for the price of one. And, and together, those two words uh, develop the thought of, of what is trying to be, be presented here. Power and authority go together. Jesus gives them, the twelve, the ability to cast out and to cure diseases, cast the demons and cure diseases. This is the power, and he gives them the right to do it. This is the authority. There were witnesses of Jesus' power in doing these things himself, and now they're about to wield that power themselves on the basis of the authority of Jesus. Jesus has the authority to send. The authority did not belong to the disciples. This is delegated authority. So Jesus has the power and authority to give power and authority. In verse 2, he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. Notice these two elements of their ministry. Preaching and healing. Exactly what Jesus did. Their ministry follows the same pattern as Jesus' ministry. and was meant to, to point to him. It was to reveal who Jesus is. Remember in Luke chapter 4, verses 18 and 19, Jesus began his ministry by declaring, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. Because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And now the apostles are about to do the same thing. In Luke 8.1, we read, Soon afterward, he went on through the cities and villages, proclaiming and bringing the good news of the kingdom of God, and the twelve were with him. Again, now the twelve are sent to do the same thing. In Luke 4.43, Jesus said, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God. And now the twelve are sent to do the same thing. Now Luke doesn't expound here on, on what Jesus meant when he sent them to proclaim the kingdom. But essentially the kingdom of God is God's reign and God's rule. Luke will expand on it as he, as he references Jesus saying in Luke 10, uh, sending out the 72, that the kingdom of God has come near you, Luke 10, 9, and 11. 
the power that Jesus wields demonstrates that the kingdom of God has come near. The message is, the king is here. Jesus Christ is the king. That is the message of the kingdom of God. Mark 6.12 includes, in the parallel, includes the call to repent. And Jesus, you can be set free from the kingdom of darkness to serve Jesus Christ, the king of kings. Brothers and sisters, you have the same power and the same authority to proclaim the kingdom of God. I talked with someone from another church the other day who, who said that, that all Christians aren't called to be evangelists. Well, I disagree. If you are an evangelical, you are called to be evangelistic. You might not be gifted as an evangelist, but you are called nonetheless. Are you an evangelical Christian? Again, there, there is no other kind. Are you an evangelical Christian? Are, are you an evangelical? Now, I, I trust that everyone here knows what the word evangelical means. I'm not, I'm not being condescending here. Many people use the word but don't know what it means. Evangelical comes from the, the Greek word euangelion, which is Greek for gospel or good news. So do you share the good news or are you an unevangelical evangelical? That makes about as much sense as an unbaptized Baptist. When Jesus gives his disciples the Great Commission in Matthew 28, 18, this is not just the Great Commission for them, for the, for the 12. This is the Great Commission for us as well. Matthew 28, 18. 18 to 20. He says, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. You see what Jesus is saying here, right? He's saying, he's saying because I have authority, Go. Because I have authority, go and make disciples of all nations. Because I have authority, go and share the gospel. And teach people to love and obey me. The Great Commission isn't just for apostles. It's for all Christians. But I wonder if in your life is the Great Commission your great omission. Please turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 18 and following. This is part of the passage that, that Joshua read for us earlier. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, down to verse 18. Notice that through Christ, God has reconciled us to himself. Have you been reconciled to God through Christ? If you have, then God has given you the ministry of reconciliation. In verse, verse 19, Paul explains what that means, that it, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. And notice again, hear it again, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. And then on the authority that all Christians have, you are ambassadors for Christ. God is making his appeal to unbelievers through you. And then in verse 21, the gospel, as he says so often, the gospel in one verse, for our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him he might become the righteousness of God. What's stopping you from sharing the gospel with people? Is it fear of what, of, of what people will think of you? You wield Christ's authority. Is it fear of how people respond? You wield Christ's power. 
you don't yield the power to convert. That is, that is the territory of the Holy Spirit. But you do wield Christ's power to preach the gospel. Whether you recognize it or not, you have authority and power to proclaim the good news of the kingdom of God. Now, you aren't a capital A apostle. The office of the apostle no longer exists. You aren't an apostle, but you are all apostles, small a apostles. Apostle simply means sent. You've all been sent by God into the world in order to proclaim the gospel. Jesus has sent you on a mission, on this mission. Jesus, again, has authority to send. Now, you also aren't one of those disciples, but you are, I trust, a disciple. A disciple is simply one who follows Jesus. Do you follow Jesus in the proclamation of the gospel? The duty of the disciple is to follow Jesus. Jesus. Do you follow Jesus? Well, so the apostles have the authority to proclaim, and so do we. Well, the apostles also have authority and power to heal. Matthew 10.7 quotes Jesus directly. He provides more detail, listing the works that the apostles will perform. Healing the sick, raising the dead, cleansing lepers, and casting out demons. And these miracles testify to the fact that the twelve were indeed messengers of God. But we don't need to have these, these miracles in order to, to understand now who is a messenger of God and who isn't. Right? The, the, the miracles served a purpose for that particular time. But we have another way now to determine whether someone is indeed a messenger sent from God. We have the word of God. And so the way to determine whether someone is truly, meant, is truly sent from God is whether their message lines up with God's message. And so do we, we, we don't have the same, uh, the same power and authority to, to heal and to cast out demons like the, uh, these apostles did. But that doesn't mean that, that we ignore people who are in, in these kinds of, of difficulties. We talked about this a couple weeks ago with the, the Gerasene demoniac. That we, when, we, when we minister to people who are suffering, we're doing this as ministers of the gospel who follow in the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Testifying to the one who will, on the final day, finally defeat all of the forces of darkness and will defeat disease and, and sin and, and everything. So we do this, as we don't just preach the word in isolation, we don't just deal with people's spiritual needs, we also deal with their physical needs. This is part of the ministry that, that you and I have been given. But again, the, the twelve were witnesses of God's power in Christ Jesus. And it, again, they're about to wield that power. Again, we, we also wield that, we wield power to heal, but not in, this, in the same way as the twelve. We don't cast out demons, but we are called to fight against the devil and his works. Ephesians 6.12, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. And then Paul goes on to talk about the spiritual armor that we all need to put on because we all, we're all in the fight. Whether you realize it or not, you are in the fight against the forces of darkness. And if you ignore that fact, then, then you're going to lose. Again, this is not just for capital A apostles and capital D disciples. This is not just for pastors. It's for all Christians. In Ephesians 4, 11 and 12, Paul says, And he gave, Jesus gave apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. And I've talked to you about this many times, but but. I am not this church's minister. I'm an assistant minister. You are the ministers. And as, as, as being part of this church, I'm a minister as well. But you and I are all ministers. My job and, and Joshua's job is to equip the saints for the work of ministry, to equip you for the work of ministry. 
Ministry is the duty of disciples. Again, not just gospel ministry, as, as crucial as that is, but also ministry to the lives of people. And, and I see so many of you doing this. I see so many of you finding ways to, 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 to love and to serve one another and to, to care for one another in the midst of trials. And to provide for each other in practical ways. This is, this is evidence that you are disciples as you walk in the, performing the duties of disciples. But now after, what, after describing what the disciples were to do, Jesus provides some very specific instructions as to what they were to take with them and how they are to conduct their ministry. And so in verses 3 to 6, we see the disciples trust. The disciples trust. There are essentially three instructions. Travel light, stay when received, leave when rejected. First, in, in verse 3, what they are to take or not take. Take nothing for your journey, no staff, no bag, nor bread, nor money, and do not have two, two tunics. And this list is quite similar to each of the synoptic gospels, but Matthew is more specific. Well, let's start with the staff. And here's the apparent problem. Here's the apparent discrepancy between Mark and the other two synoptics. Mark 6, 8 says, Take nothing for your journey, no staff, no bag, nor bread, nor money. Or, no, or sorry, Luke says, says, take no staff, no, uh, says, sorry. Matthew says, take no staff. Luke says, take no staff. But Mark 6, 8 says, do not take an extra staff. So it seems here that, that Luke is, is, is saying, don't take any staff, and Matthew is saying, don't take any staff, whereas Mark is saying, don't take more than one staff. And you can see why people would see this as a contradiction. This is, this is an apparent contradiction in the scriptures. But, but what's going on here is, is there a mistake here? Well, some who deny the inerrancy of God's word use this as evidence to prove their point. But all they're really revealing is their presupposition that their presupposition is against the inerrancy of God's word. But inerrantists, me and I hope you, also have presuppositions. Not all presuppositions are bad. We are guided by the presupposition that there are no mistakes in the Bible. None. In the original manuscript. So then how do we deal with this apparent discrepancy? Well, bear with me for a few minutes because this is going to be a little bit technical, but, but don't worry, I'm going to make it clear at the end. Well, some suggest that, that, that the writers, in this case Luke and, and Matthew then as well, got the detail wrong. That they had, from, from the sources that they heard these things from, and, and we do know that, that Luke did get this from a, from a source, that he was an eyewitness to these things, that, they, that somehow they, they, the source that they quoted or referred to got it wrong. Well, friends, that can't be the case. Because any error in the Bible, even a small error, would mean that the Bible is not trustworthy. If the Bible can't be trusted in even the small details, it can't be trusted in the largest details. But the converse is also true. Because the Bible can be trusted in the smallest details, it can also be trusted in the largest details. Another proposed solution is that Mark is, is speaking uh, of a different occasion. That this sending out of the twelve is different in Mark from, from what, what we have recorded here in, in Luke and also in Matthew. Well, that also doesn't seem likely because of because of what comes after. So here we have the, uh, here we have the, the reference to the death of, of John the Baptist and then the feeding of the 5,000. The same happens in Mark. Now Luke does have a, or Matthew rather, has a time period before he comes back to these things. But, but, but again, because of the, the similarity of not just the, the description itself, but, but because of what happens around it, it, it seems that these are indeed the same incident. 
Another common solution is that there's two different types of, of, of uh, walking of sticks in mind. There were indeed two kinds of sticks. They used walking sticks and they'd also carry a, a shorter club that, that they would use for defense. And, and that they're both used the same the Greek word to define them or to, to reference them. But again, I, I don't think that that's the case because, well, first it, would, it actually would, would mean we'd have to get involved in, in, um, in just supposition. We can't really tell that for sure. But, but I, I believe there is actually a solution that better fits the context. We think about what is being taught here. And don't worry, I'm going to wrap this up in a second. But, but I believe it can be found in looking at the Greek verbs. In Matthew, the verb is translated acquire. Whereas Mark and, and Luke, it's, it's, translated, it's translated take. And the, this is reflected in the, the better English translations that are, are, more, are they're more direct translations as opposed to paraphrases. But the meaning here seems to be don't take another staff. Don't go get another staff. Don't acquire or don't purchase one. But if you already have one, take it. Now, if you're not convinced yet, think about the other example. This is the other difference it's in these two passages. The same is true for sandals. Luke doesn't mention sandals, but Matthew says, don't take them, whereas Mark says, wear sandals. Now, Jesus is obviously not saying that you are to go barefoot. Right? He's saying that, that you, you, should take, you shouldn't take extra sandals. That, that you don't need to prepare for this trip. Just go. Just go, trusting God. That if you, if you have this, take it. But don't prepare as though you're... Is, is there, okay, that might run out, then I'm going to have to take another. You could take a, a second or a third or, or a fourth. Or, or take an, a second or a third or a fourth pair of sandals. I don't know about you, but when I go on a trip, I'd, I'd usually take a couple of pairs of shoes. But Jesus is saying, you don't need to do that. Just go and trust God. That God will provide for you. He says, neither are they to take a bag. Now, this likely refers to the, to the purse that the traveling clergy and traveling teachers would, would take, and they would, in these, into these bags, they would put the alms that they received. Now, Matthew lines up with Luke here, but quotes Jesus more fully. He says, don't take any gold or silver or copper. They weren't supposed to take money with them, and they weren't supposed to receive money either, so they didn't need a bag to put it in. Likewise for bread and tunics. They were to travel light, not taking extra provisions, trusting that, that God would give them everything that they needed, that everything would be provided for them through the generosity of those who received their ministry. Now, this isn't six steps to a successful missions trip. This was not to be their practice every time. This is temporary. This is a lesson. This is a teaching moment, part of their training. Learning to trust God. Now, it's generally wise to prepare. You know, when we go camping, we have a, a checklist that we go through to make sure we have everything that we need so we don't go out into the bush and say, oh, I forgot this or I forgot that. It's wise to prepare. Proverbs 21.5 says that the, the plans of the diligent lead surely to abundance, but everyone who is hasty comes only to, to poverty. Even people in the world recognize this. Benjamin Franklin said, by, by failing to prepare, you are preparing to fail. And so in this passage where Jesus is telling them, don't prepare, he's contradicting simple wisdom to teach them a profound lesson. Jesus is contradicting simple wisdom to teach them a profound lesson. When Jesus commissions them again in Luke 22, verses 35 and 36, he says, referring to this incident, when I sent you out with no money bag or knapsack or sandals, did you lack anything? They said nothing. And he said to them, but, but now let the one who has a money bag take it, likewise a knapsack, and let the one who has no sword sell his cloak and buy one. So clearly, Jesus is teaching something very different in Luke 22 from what he was teaching back in, in this passage in Luke chapter 9. This highlights the danger of using descriptive passages in the scriptures to get confirmation and applying them universally. You need to look for principles that are being taught, and these are the applications, and to look for, for confirmation in the prescriptive passages. 
So what, what is a prescriptive passage that deals with this principle, with this lesson? Well, one is clear, Matthew 6, 31 to 33. Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after these things, and your heavenly Father knows they need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. And so here we have the disciples seeking first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, trusting that everything they need will be added to them. I wonder, is that your focus in your life? Are you first seeking the kingdom of God and his righteousness? Again, not, not being foolish and, and not, not ever, you're not saying, he's not saying don't prepare, but where is your trust? Where is your, your heart in this? Is your heart set on the things that you are worried about losing? Or the things you think you need? Or is your heart and your trust set fully on God? God would provide everything they needed so they didn't need to take anything. They would learn to trust God implicitly. This would also help to, to keep them from being choked out like the, like the seed among thorns from the cares and the pleasures of life, Luke 8, 14. This lesson is going to protect them and to help them greatly in future ministry. And so the duty of the disciple that we're looking at here is to, to trust that God will provide everything they needed. Do you trust that God will give you everything that you need? Some of you are learning that lesson right now through relational hardship or financial hardship or physical hardship or spiritual hardship or COVID-19, whether it's fear of the disease or fear of the government or in some cases fear of both. Stop and take stock. What is the Lord teaching you about his faithfulness in the presence of hardship. I trust that God is teaching you that he is indeed sovereign and wise and loving, that he is your heavenly father and that he will give you everything that you need. Again, the duty of the disciple is to trust God. Do you trust God? Jesus continues in the same vein in verse 4. Part of God's provision will be a, a place to stay. That they're, they're, the disciples here are to stay in the places that they are, where they minister. And whatever house you enter, stay there and from there depart. Jesus is saying that when someone welcomes you into their home, stay for the duration of your ministry in that town. See, in that time, traveling clergy and teachers would go, from, would go door to door from house to house, often looking for handouts. Jesus is saying, when you go and you welcome, stay there in that particular place. But because when you, if, you're, if they were to go from door to door, it, there would be an, an appearance of, of mercenary ministry. And so what Jesus is teaching you, this, this is a good general practice, that, that they are to, to go and to stay in the house where they're first welcomed. But again, this is not an ongoing command. It's for this particular missions trip. Now, of course, the duty of disciples is to, to give, not to get, but Jesus does not make a particular stipulation about where they stay when he commissions them again. And then in verse 5, we have the corresponding verse. And wherever they do not receive you, when you leave that town, shake off the dust from your feet as a testimony against them. So it's stay when received and leave when rejected. But they're not just to leave when they're rejected. They're supposed to do something before they leave. They're to shake the dust off their feet when they leave. Well, what's all this about? Well, Albert Edersheim says that the very dust of the heathen country, according to the, the rabbinic Jews, was considered unclean. It was defiled by contact, and it was regarded like a grave or like the putrescence of death. And so pious Jews who had entered Gentile territory upon their return to Israel would take off their, their sandal and shake the dust off their feet. And so here we have, we, we have Jesus telling the disciples to do this. When, when, a, when a Jew was to shake the dust off their feet, this was, was a testimony against the Gentiles. And so in giving these, this command to the disciples here to do this, he's saying that you are saying to those Jews that they are like Gentiles. That they aren't even the people of God. 
was a testimony against them. In Acts 13.51, we see Paul and Barnabas doing this at, at Antioch and Pisidia when the people drove them out of their district. They shook the dust from their feet against them and went on to Iconium. Matthew here includes the dire warning. Truly, I say to you, it would be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town, Luke 10, or Mark, Matthew 10.15. Now, all of this might sound harsh, but this would serve as one final warning that unless they repented, they would come under the judgment of God. And perhaps some who, who saw this, saw them saw the disciples shaking the dust off their feet when, they, when, when this happened, it would fill them with holy fear and they would, would turn to God in repentance and faith. But of those who wouldn't, and of those who still don't, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 16, 22, if anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. Our Lord come. And Paul describes their condemnation at the return of Jesus in 2 Thessalonians 1, 7-9. When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. Now, I don't know about you, but when I read these things, my mind is flooded with my loved ones, people I care about, people, people that, I, that I know, people in my family, neighbors and friends who don't know Jesus and that they are under that judgment. And so one of the duties of disciples is to tell people to repent and to turn to Jesus in faith and worship. Now that goes without saying. But Jesus is saying here that the duty of disciples includes the faithful warning to tell people that they are to flee from the wrath to come or that they will fall under the judgment of God. Now again, I'm not sure about you, but it's, it's pretty easy for me to be nice to unbelievers because I want to be a good testimony to them. But it takes it up a notch to be nice enough to them to tell them the gospel. And and particularly, what, one of the ways that, that, that you can do this, that I, I try to do this, is, is by talking to them, talking to them about, about my experience of the gospel, that, that the repentance and faith that, that was granted to me, and as I have, that the experience of God that I have with God through the gospel. So that's a little bit harder to do. But when it gets harder again, is by telling them that this is not just a subjective Thing. This is not just about, about me and God that you're saying to someone, you need to repent and believe the gospel or you will come under the judgment of God. That gets harder again. And then even, even harder to tell them what the judgment of God looks like. Now on the face of it, that might sound harsh. It might, it might sound harsh to tell someone that unless you repent, you will be cast into the lake of fire with the devil and his angels and you will suffer the wrath of God for all eternity. That might sound harsh. But isn't it more harsh not to tell them that? If somebody that you know has inadvertently swallowed poison and you know about it and, and you don't tell them. That's harsh. And it's even more harsh if, if you have the antidote and you don't give it to them. The vast majority of the people that you encounter in the course of your daily life are headed to hell. They're headed to a Christless eternity. And you have the solution for them. You have the gospel. The same gospel that saved you can save them through the power of the Holy Spirit. By God's grace, love God enough and love them enough to tell them about Jesus Christ. To tell them that they also must turn to Him in repentance and faith. they reject the gospel. You have done your duty. You have given them the opportunity. I hope that your relationships are centered on the gospel. 
even your relationships with unbelievers. Now, applying this, this, this principle here of, of shaking the dust off your feet and, and leaving, I've, I've been asked by people, when, when should you walk away from someone who rejects the gospel? Well, I'll keep evangelizing people in my life as long as they'll listen. But when, it, when a person says, stop trying to convert me, or stop telling me about God, I'll back off. Now, there, there would be a time, I think, to, to walk away from someone who is like that. But even times when, when that's not appropriate at that point to just to, to walk away, you can at least respect their request. These people quite often will actually walk away from you. But remember, when you reject, rejected because of the gospel, they are not rejecting you. They're rejecting Christ in you. They're rejecting Jesus. They're, respect, they're rejecting the person of Jesus Christ. They're not just rejecting a set of, of abstract facts. They are rejecting Jesus Christ. They're proving that they hate Jesus because they love their sin. And so in the application of this, may God give us all wisdom and faithfulness in our relationships. So in verse 6, we see that the disciples departed and went through the villages, preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. They were obedient. They did what Jesus told them to do. They fulfilled their duty. The ministry of Jesus Christ could extend beyond the incarnation of Christ. The gospel is going to go forward, and the disciples will bear fruit for the glory of God. The disciples are proving that they are indeed good soil. In John 15, 8, Jesus says that, By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to me be my disciples. But here, too, we see the seeds of rejection. That there are those who reject God. So with the time that I have left, I want to focus quickly on, on someone who rejects God, on the, on the anti-disciple. Verses 7 to 9, the opponent's doubts. So while all this, this ministry is going on, while the disciples have, have spread across all of Galilee and are, are proclaiming the gospel, meanwhile, at Herod's fortress, Herod has gotten wind of what's going on. Now we already heard in Luke chapter 8 that Joanna, the wife of Cusa, Herod's household manager, was following Jesus. So Herod was already aware, would have been already aware of, of Jesus. But now, Herod is troubled. This is no longer a solo miracle worker traveling throughout the land. Now there is a dozen followers traveling throughout the land and, and performing miracles. They've gone all over Galilee, over his territory, performing miracles. Now Herod Remember, is, is described by, by Luke as is, is Herod the Tetrarch. He's ruler over, over one-fourth of the region. Remember, he'd been set up by the Romans as a, a puppet king. who was a very evil man. His father was Herod the Great, a title that he'd taken to himself. The same Herod who tried to kill Jesus and killed all the, the little boys under the age of two in Bethlehem in an attempt to get rid of Jesus. That Herod was his father. Well, this Herod, Herod Antipas, was following in his father's footsteps. Mark goes into detail describing the account, but we've already heard in, in Luke chapter 3, verses 19 and 20, how John the Baptist had rebuked Herod because of his brother's wife. You see, Herod had gone and seduced his brother Philip's wife and then convinced her to, to divorce Herod, Herod and to marry him. You can read this in, in, Luke's, in Mark 6, verses 14 to 29. That John, that John had been put in prison by Herod. And then you remember the story how, how Herodias, Herod's wife in an adulterous relationship, had gone and danced before them in what was obviously a, a seductive dance, and that he said, I'll give you anything up to half the kingdom, and that, that this, this girl, at her mother's suggestion, said, give me the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And so Herod sent and had John the Baptist beheaded. 
This is going on while this ministry of the disciples is taking place. So Herod heard what the disciples were doing. Mark 6.14 says specifically, King Herod heard of it, for Jesus' name had become known. And Herod was perplexed about Jesus. And there were rumors that were going around that John the Baptist had been raised from the dead. And others thought that Jesus was Elijah or another prophet risen from the dead. Now Elijah was expected to return before Jesus. Malachi 3.1, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And Malachi 4.5, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. Matthew 4.5. So Jesus and his ministry and that of the disciples had caused a great stir. It's clear that, that Jesus had, had aroused a lot of interest because of what he was doing and what, because of what his disciples were doing. And then verse 9. John, I beheaded, but who is this about whom I hear such things? And he sought to see him. Herod sought to see Jesus. Now it's very clear from the wider context that, that Herod did not just want to see Jesus in, in order to in order to to hear the gospel and repent and be saved. Luke 13, 31. At this very hour, some of the Pharisees came to Jesus and said, get away from here for Herod wants to kill you. And finally, in Luke 23, 8, when Herod does see Jesus, he's very glad because he had long desired to see him because he had heard about him and he's hoping to see some sign done by him. He wasn't interested in following Jesus. He just wanted to see a sign, a miracle. So we see here that this rejection of, of, of Jesus by Herod. In this we see that, that he is, is really like so many who rejected Jesus. They hear about Jesus. They hear rumors about Jesus. They hear things about Jesus. But they deny Jesus. This also serves as a warning to the disciples. This is a, a warning that they also will be rejected. Matthew goes on to, right after this incident, to describe this in, in great detail. Let me go there for just a minute. Matthew chapter 10, look at verse, verse 16. Jesus says to the disciples, this is part of the same commission. He says, Behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves, so be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. So he says that you're going to be you're going to be hated. People are going to treat you horribly because of me. That they're going to follow in Jesus' footsteps, not just in his ministry, but also in his suffering. Verse, verse 24, a disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. They call the master of the house Beelzebul. How much more will they malign those of his household? But, verse 26, have no fear of them. Have no fear of them. In verse 28, I do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. So this serves as a, as a warning to the disciples that, that what happened to John the Baptist could happen to them. In fact, it will happen to them, to, to all of them. Every one of the disciples will be killed apart from John the disciple who is exiled on Patmos. But the rest of them will be martyred for their faith. This is a warning to them, and it's, it's a warning to us. I could perhaps say it like this, that the duty of disciples is to be rejected, that you are to expect rejection. But the duty, the duty of the disciples is to stand firm no matter what comes against you. Stand firm no matter what anybody does or says. Stand firm in your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ in obedience to him. No matter what anybody threatens you with or even does to you. But Herod rejected Jesus. And I wonder why he is, he's, he's worried here that, that John the Baptist has, has risen from the dead. This is, this is a guilty conscience. Guilty conscience often it'll, it'll flee when no one's chasing. J.C. Ryle says the prison and the sword had silenced John the Baptist's tongue, but they could not silence the voice of Herod's inward man. God's truth can neither be silenced nor bound nor killed. Herod's conscience was preaching against him, 
And your conscience can't save you. I used to hate my conscience. My conscience didn't really keep me from doing anything, but, but it kept me from enjoying the things that I wanted to do to their full extent. And I, I, I tried as, as hard as I could to, to drown my conscience in drugs and debauchery. But they all rose up again. All of those past sins rose up before my, my conscience, brought them before my mind's eye and, and helped me to, to see my guilt before the Holy God. Again from Ryle. Let them know that conscience can bring up each sin before the eyes of their minds and make it bite like a serpent. Millions will testify in the last day that Herod's experience was their own. Conscience called old sins from their graves and made them walk up and down in their hearts. Friend, friends, John the Baptist's conscience, or John the Baptist wasn't raised from the dead, rather, but Herod's conscience was. And the only answer to a guilty conscience is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And Herod did never, never found that answer. But let this be a warning to you. Again, your conscience is a guard, but not a guide. Your conscience needs to be guided by Scripture. Romans 14, 22, Blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself for what he approves. Herod asks, who is this? This is the question that we've been hearing repeatedly. Who is this? Chapter 7, 49, who is this that who even forgives sins? Or 8.25, who is this that he commands the winds and the water and they obey him? And here in verse 9, now who is this about whom I hear such things? And this is all preparing the disciples and us for this crucial question in, that comes in, in from 18 to 20. Who do the crowds say that I am? And they answered, John, some say, who do the people of the crowd say that I am? And they answered, John the Baptist. Others say, Elijah. And others, one of the prophets of old has risen. Then he said to him, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, the Christ of God. Who is Jesus? This is the most important question. This is why the disciples went out through Galilee, why Jesus had sent, sent them out to proclaim who Jesus is. Not just who is he as an objective set of facts, but who is he to you? Herod got it wrong. Will you? So as we see the disciples sent out into Galilee, we're seeing really a foretaste of, of what they're going to be doing again and again and again. And we're seeing a foretaste of, of what we're going to look at throughout the, the, the book of Acts. As Jesus ascends to heaven and now leaves the apostles out to, to start the church in the power of the Holy Spirit. These were regular guys. They were average Joes. And they became the foundation of the church through their ministry of the gospel. And their ministry continues in us, in you and in me. We also have duties as disciples. We have the same duties as those disciples. Yes, it's, it's a little different under the, the time we now live, but we have the same essential duties. But the reality, even as, we, as I've talked about this, this, this morning, as I've, I've listed some of the duties that you have as, as a disciple, I'm sure it's the same for you as it is for me, that, that you're aware of, of your shortcomings. That you're aware of the fact that you don't perform the duties as you have been called to do. That, that at best, we're all unworthy servants. But praise God that we are not saved on the basis of the performance of our duties. Praise God that we are saved through, by faith alone, in Christ alone, for the glory of God alone. Jesus Christ performed all those duties perfectly. Jesus Christ performed every duty that the moral law of God required. Jesus Christ performed every duty that you are required to do, and he did it with absolute perfection. And through the gospel, his perfect obedience is credited to your account. And he suffered and died in your place 
for the ways that all the ways that you and I fall short. Jesus died for our failures to discharge our duties. And so we walk in the duties that God has given us by the grace of God, hoping that, that he is going to be glorified through our, our weak and, and, and sometimes foolish attempts, and that he's going to work all of those things for the glory of his name and for the building of his church. Trusting that he is going to fill up everything that is lacking in your obedience and in mine. But as Jesus was sending out these apostles, uh, of course he knew who was going to make it and who wasn't going to make it. He still does. Jesus Christ has lost none except the son of destruction that the scripture might be fulfilled, John 17, 12. Jesus was holding them fast. He still is. Jesus was also praying not for the world, but for those the Father had given him, John, John 17, 9. Jesus interceded for the elect. He still does. Brothers and sisters, Jesus is still holding you fast. Philippians 1.6, I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion in the day of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is, is interceding for you right now. He is the one who has died more than that who was raised, who was at the right hand of God, was inter, is indeed interceding for us. Romans 8.34. So coming back to my first question. Will I make it? Will you make it? Again, not just as a, as a minister, but as, will you, not just, will you survive? But will your faith make it? Will your faith make it? Remember, just before I was about to graduate, I had, I had two big questions. What am I going to do, and how am I going to do it? Well, the answer is Ephesians 2.10. We are God's workmanship in Christ Jesus for good works that he's prepared in advance that we should walk in them. It's the only way that you'll make it in ministry. It's the only way you'll make it as a Christian. Because you are God's workmanship in Christ Jesus, and he enables you to do what you need to do for the glory of his name and for your good and for the building of his church. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we praise you. Lord, that though you have given us the means of grace of prayer and time in the word and fellowship, Lord Jesus, we praise you that we'll make it because of you. We'll make it because you were holding us fast. We'll make it because you are interceding for us. We'll make it because we are your workmanship in you, Christ Jesus. Lord, I pray that you would help us as your people. Lord, to flee sloth and apathy and deliberate disobedience and help us Lord to discharge the duties that you have given us with faithfulness through the power of your Holy Spirit and for the glory of your name. Amen.